You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. We're here today with Dan Elsner, President of Marion University, and I guess my sometimes boss whenever they have some PR work that needs to be done. Yeah, you've Uh, done some nice things for us. Well, I I appreciate that. Thank you very much. You're a smart guy. That's very kind. Thank you. We're very uh, honored and pleased to be here at what is a beautiful campus. Marion University has an absolutely beautiful campus. And if you're ever looking for a place to take a nice walk or ride your bike around, uh, give Marion University a shot. It's in a beautiful Mm. part of the city. Just don't Um, run me over. (laughs) You see an old man walk across campus, be polite. (laughs) It is a gorgeous piece of ground. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you got here. I don't believe you're native to Indiana. So tell us a little bit about your first few years. Well, uh, actually grew up in Lincoln and Omaha, Nebraska. So, and, uh, after graduating from college, uh, I finished my coursework in three and a half years. I worked in the legislature there, uh, grew up in a very democratic household, blue collar union household. And, uh, I, one of my professors was a Republican senator in the unicameral legislature in Nebraska and uh, worked for him. During that time, tutored students, did some teaching at the penitentiary with Senator Marvel, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. That was my uh, most interesting class list I've ever had. But anyway, uh, he really encouraged me to teach. So I taught for six years, and then I became a high school principal in Topeka, Kansas, and then after doing that for a handful of years, I became a superintendent in Wichita, Kansas. Came here, I was superintendent of the 71 Catholic schools. We served about 25,000 students. Crystal DeHaan sold her business and wanted to start a foundation and work on education here and around the world. And she knew me from, I got her involved in some of our projects when I was superintendent. She's generous, too. and uh, She's a remarkable philanthropist, yeah. especially when it comes to education. Absolutely, yeah. She's, and then uh, one day, as mine and my own business, as executive director of her uh, Crystal Hahn Family Foundation and her, some of her education initiatives were, were very large, frankly. And uh, Marion wanted to know if I'd wanted to be a non-traditional president. And that would have been in uh, the uh, really late 2000 and in 2001. I f- frankly, I said, no, I have a really good position here with Crystal. I enjoy these endeavors and giving money away to education and making investments, making a difference in the world, something I loved. And, uh, uh, well, a little thought and prayer and some people talking me into it a bit, uh, talking me into it, encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marion was in a weakened position and I thought it'd be a good thing to turn it around, felt called to the work, and we went to work, and now it's a booming Catholic university in a great city. You grew up in Nebraska, so you were there, I'm, I'm guessing, we don't, we don't ask people's ages on Leaders and Legends, but you were there for some pretty phenomenal football years. Oh, yeah. In the rivalry with Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. What was that like in a, in a football-crazed state in late 60s, let's say early 70s? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, it was exciting. You know, Nebraska is a great – Nebraska and Indiana would have the same cultural feel. I mean, people are nice. You don't have to teach them nice. Mm -hmm. By and large, they know nice. They live nice. They're DNA nice. Um, But there's no pro teams in Nebraska, right? Mm -hmm. And really, even other sports, you don't play a lot of baseball, they do have an amazing volleyball program, unless that's changed. Yeah, that developed uh, in like the last 20 years. But in the 60s, and they had some history in football in the 40s, etc. But a guy named Bob Devaney, Bob Devaney came rolling into town. And uh, they asked him, you know, what he's going to do to get the football program going. He said, we're going to win. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that. And then he 
started recruiting, had some good luck. There were some good uh, players in Omaha and Johnny the Jet Rogers, the Heisman Trophy winner. And they had a character that was an announcer, Lyle Bremser, who would say, man, woman, and child, look at him go. He <laughs> tore him loose from their shoes. He was a great announcer. Everything just kind of grew, and they started to win, and everybody latched on to it. So for not a very big state, and I grew up pretty close to the stadium, and we'd go down to all the football games. The, the first years he was there, you could get in the not whole section, for 50 cents a kid, and then the adult was $2.50. So my dad could take his five sons and himself for $5 to the football game. Hmm. So I remember doing that just a couple times. Then after that, they got really good. You couldn't get a ticket to save your life. Plus, we didn't have any money. So you would sneak in. We'd climb over the fence, go under the fence. We'd hide in the bath. We'd go down there 9 in the morning, hide in the bathroom all day, and stand on the toilet so they couldn't see your feet. <laughs> I went I, I went in on a garbage truck once. I marched in with the band a few times. If you got in between about five deep into the band, you could really? get in. There. Oh, yeah. We, we never missed a game. Then you get about ninth grade or so, climbing over the fence doesn't look so good. But through sixth, seventh, eighth, a couple games in ninth grade, we just would sneak in because otherwise you didn't get a go. And occasionally you'd be on national TV. And it was just down the street, so it was you got quite a kick out of it. And it was they had colorful players, and it's you know they won, so it was fun. We're going to ask you about uh, your your sincere and honest devotion to your Catholic faith uh-huh. in a few minutes, but I can't remember the exact year. It might have been seventy two, seventy three. Mm-hmm. Nebraska destroys Notre Dame. I think the score was forty to six. Yeah, I think it was like the Orange Bowl, yeah. In the Orange Bowl. So who were you rooting for? Oh, well, hey, listen. (laughs) Notre Dame was a nice thought out there, okay? But my neighbors, I I knew where I lived, okay? And uh, frankly, it is kind of funny because, say, at the end of the day, Notre Dame would have had a great game. That would have made us happy, too, because when you were growing up, Notre Dame football is really kind of an interesting thing to understand with Catholicism. Exactly right. Because Catholics were minorities, often uh, immigrants, looked down on a little bit. and Vilified, certainly a target of the Klan when the Klan reemerged in the 20s. That's right. But And even CYO grew out of that, that there was big boxing clubs up in Chicago, CYO. It was a way for immigrant kids to have pride, and everybody latched on to Notre Dame football if you were a Catholic guy because you could maybe be looked down by so forth, but people did identify with Notre Dame football. So in a way, I guess when Nebraska played, yeah, I mean, that that was the neighborhood, and I grew up down the street, and you you know, you knew some of the players from one of your local high school or something, you know, so you really <laughs> cheered for those guys. But um, I, I, you know, wouldn't have been a hard pill to take to see Notre Dame win. Frankly, our family would have got a little fun out of that too. So, you know, yeah, your your uh, football allegiance it won't get you to heaven. So, we, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can get a few bumps and bruises out of football, but you can't get to heaven. You mentioned. I want to ask you to look quickly about Crystal DeHaan. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the amazing amount of work she has done. Oh, yeah. And the incredible generosity that she has shared with her fellow mm-hmm. human beings. Uh, can you give us a little insight into, into what's important to her, why she chose education? What's it like to work with someone who's just, who's just it seems to me, leads with her heart? I don't know her that well. I met her a few times yeah. when I worked for right, Mayor right. Ballard, but she's always thinking of others. Oh, How did yeah. that influence you? Well, all along the way, you pick up with some really good leaders. And if you're smart and you keep your ears open and watch, you learn a lot. And one of the common themes you see in people that make a difference in the world is they're passionate. They have a calling. In other words, you, you know, you, I was telling you, saying earlier, it's hard to teach someone nice. Mm-hmm. It's hard to teach somebody passion, calling, devotion, commitment, 
where kind of like a head through the wall type of thing. You know, where if I have to put my head through that wall, we will get this done. She has that, but she also has, um, Crystal would keep grinding and paying attention to something until she figured it out in detail. A lot of people will uh, list this. Okay, that'll work. Hmm, not her. No, she didn't want to do philanthropy and give money away. She wanted to make a difference, and that's the mind of an investor. So if you're going to invest a lot of money in a company, you'll do a lot of due diligence. Why? You don't want to lose your money, and you want to return. That's exactly how she views philanthropy, and I loved watching that. And I, I suspect we've had tremendous success here at Marion. You know, people donate a lot of money to us to get good deeds done in the world. And I suspect watching a philanthropist ask questions, ponder how to get a return on investment has had a profound effect on me. Plus, she's just a good friend. I mean, she's, if she's your friend, you're, she's your friend. And if you want to get something done and you want energy and you want to see humanity flourish, uh, that's a good wagon to hook your star to. So, yeah, I learned a lot from her, inspired by her. And um, I'm very thankful I had the opportunity. I mean, it was, she, she obviously paid me well to run her foundation and all, but I could have paid tuition and been happy as well. <laughs> no, that makes sense. That's a great way to put it. She chose education. Do you think that absolutely jibes with the investment part of, of what you just Oh, there's no about? doubt about it. You know, like if you were to say to her, give some money to feed people, she has a heart. Obviously, she'd have some interest in that. I'm, I know. I'm sure. I know she's done some of that. But if you want to transform a life, change trajectory, she understands the power of education. You know, she came here from Germany with nothing, and she's a learner. And she hired a lot of smart people, and she saw what they could do in delivering a good product and taking care of customers and coming through. And without education of the heart and the character and the mind and skill development, your value to the world and your ability to participate in the world like you might like want to do, might mm-hmm. want to do, like you feel called to do, is very limited. And it's never been more that way with a modernization of technology and automation and artificial intelligence and all this. What's the coin of the realm right now? It's education. And people who deliver it in, in a in a, in a value-based way, in a way that respects the human person, engages the human person. And those are all passions she has. You know, when, when she has her Crystal House schools here in this country and around the world, she measures them in multiple ways, not just reading scores and math scores. Are they employable? Do they go to school? Do they stay in college? Do they stay employed? Do they contribute to their community? Do they raise good families? So she's, uh, well pretty obvious you know she's one in them she's a very unique human being passion follow through and she sticks with commitments over the long haul some of the other people you've encountered in your career and i I definitely wanted to ask you specifically about some education issues but Mm -hmm. who you just say as as someone who loves history and studied history, I always contend that leadership is the most underrated element of any success. That that, that there's there's so much that is um, emphasized, whether it's money or the you know the weather or the movement. <laughs> and I know the quote unquote great man uh, theory of history is under fire. Uh, I'm a believer in that theory. There's no substitute for Eisenhower. There's no. Well, I would substitute. say the great person theory, yeah, but exactly, we and we understand. Yeah. And who have you met where you just who you just think has it when it comes to leadership? Just you don't name twenty names, just two or three where you're like, wow, this this person really can yeah. get people motivated and to success. I just so many. Some of them I've met through books and videos and combination. You know, I've read like you. I'm a student of of leadership because I've always been amazed by its power um, in athletics. You saw it a lot, right? Um, some of the greatest leaders I've ever been in the presence of. One time I was in the presence of John Paul II. I always thought he was a tall person 
till he came in the room. He was a short little guy. Now he had charisma. Sure. You know, he studied theater. He mm-hmm. knew how to come in a room and grab it. Uh, Ted Hesburgh, a unique person. I, I, Former I president of Notre Dame. Notre Dame, yeah. He, uh, he was a pretty good president. But anyway, <laughs> uh, he did a good job. I've been in the presence of, you know, our former governor, now President Purdue. Mitch Daniels is a very good leader. Um, you know, a different kind of charisma. Uh, Crystal, you mentioned her. She was a, a unique kind of leader. So I often, I don't know if I think so much, uh, I was never met Mother Teresa, but look at a simple person and the power of that. Um, I love studying leadership. I'm pretty convinced what it's about. I'm pretty convinced in the main. I'm pretty convinced that you can teach it and develop it. I'm pretty convinced that about 90% of it is character and calling and trustworthiness. You can't fake it. Um, if you're not committed and people sense it just for a moment, why go up the hill with you? Because when it gets tough, you're going to back off or blame or flinch. But uh, if they say, you know, I can trust this person and they'll go with me and I won't be standing alone. Um, so, So some of it being in the presence of is one thing. There's some people with great charisma I don't know that they're always the greatest of leaders. They might be good leaders or average leaders. Some people are good speech makers. Some people actually get things done, and they know how to build teams of people to get things done. And uh, I'm enamored with leadership because it changes people's lives, especially those that are most poor or vulnerable. The, the more vulnerable an individual is in society or in a situation, a school, a family, a healthcare position, you really depend on leaders, someone who's other-centered to say, we're going to take care of everybody here, and we're going to do it right. One you got the, me on a topic I like. No, I, that's, I probably well, wandered you know, on you. <laughs> no, the podcast is called Leaders and Legends for a reason, right? These are the people we want to talk to, including you. But one of the most – she's certainly, if not the most impressive person I've ever met. She is on the – she's at the front row of the class photo, and that's Allison Melangdon. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. She's a good friend. Um, and, you know, she talked a lot about when she did our podcast about helping homeless women and mm-hmm. Wheeler Mission. And it goes to exactly what you're saying. The most vulnerable. How can I use my skills, my network, my leadership mm-hmm. to help those most vulnerable? Um, another person we talked about for a few minutes before we started recording today, who I think is just phenomenal, is Mark Miles. Very special. I, it's just fun to be with him. Hey, Allison. We just honored her with a special award here. And you know, she, Allison Melangton is one in a million. Her faith. She is a, we, we think in four quadrants here as we educate leaders. That's our vision, to educate transformational leaders for service to the world. The, the first quadrant, we always say, are they inquisitive people? Are they on a relentless pursuit to better serve? The second is about skill. Do you have skills? And the reason I bring up these four quadrants, when you mention these people, think of the think of them. Mark, Allison, Crystal, different people we're talking about. They're inquisitive. They're never satisfied. We've done our best to serve people, to make things better. They've developed their skills, executive functioning skills, the ability to speak, listen. Um, their specific skills might be in management, accounting, chemistry, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the third quadrant, and we think it is the rise and fall and the end all and be all at the end of the day, and that's character and trustworthiness. If I can't trust you, I don't care how smart you are and I don't care how skilled you are. The fourth quadrant, frankly, John Lecklatter is an amazing leader. Um, he, he encouraged us to think about this is a, a wellness, a spiritual, physical, mental, well person, balanced person. Uh, well screwed together, so to speak, is always going to be a good leader. So I, when I think about these people that are outstanding, you know, if I think about those quadrants, those four boxes, their minds don't stop. They're always trying to do things a little better, skill. They're very trustworthy people. They've worked on their character. They have good values. They're consistent. And they have a balance about them that uh, makes them dependable. 
You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and Aaron Shaler, a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending. I'm your host, Robert Vane. We're here with Marion President Dan Elsner. I want to mention quickly two other leaders, uh, one of whom I know you very well because his name's on a school here, and another one, and this is going to hopefully uh, dovetail into a broader discussion about education, Uh, Fred Klipsch. Mm-hmm. Proud Howe graduate, mm-hmm. IPS kid. Yeah, we went to the same grade school and the same high school, different yeah. times, of course. Mm-hmm. And Al Hubbard, these yeah. two men, phenomenally successful. They could spend their money any way they want, right? Selfishly, selfishly, or selflessly. Yet they have chosen to be uh, selfless and generous, and quite frankly, thought leaders when it comes to the education reform movement, not only mm-hmm. here in the city and state, but also throughout the country. What's it like to work with two incredibly successful businessmen who've decided to mm-hmm. invest their success into ensuring yeah. the success of our young people? Well, those you were taught earlier, you know, I didn't get down my list, but one of them that immediately came to mind, both are wonderful people. Um, Fred Klipsch is the most strategic mind. He's on our board of trustees as well. Mm-hmm. But years ago, he wanted to drive improvement. You know, because he he didn't grow up. He grew up in an environment where there weren't a lot of resources. They were working people. I grew up on the Near East Side yeah. by School Seventy Eight, which is roughly Sherman and yeah. uh, Washington. So he really tried to drive educational improvement. He thought that every kid deserved a chance. He often says, what kid, show me a kid that doesn't deserve the best shot in life. And strategically, he worked very hard on issues around education. He, particularly, but also his wife, Judy, have invested a lot in the Klipsch College, which is a dynamic new approach to recruiting and developing educational talent for our students, which is the biggest thing. Principals and teachers drive change. And that's what makes A schools. You have to work with present teachers and new teachers. Uh, what's it like to work with them? It's, it's, uh, it's a journey of strategic thinking, systematic thinking, and sticking with a plan. I've known Al Hubbard for 20-some years. And, you know, like you, 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 it's interesting. Where do people earn value and excitement in their life? It's doing for others. You know, Robert, I had an interesting experience this year. One of our senior uh, students, they have a senior art show, senior chemistry show, whatever mm-hmm. project. And one of our students did a whole art show, uh, show on gratitude. And when you talk about Al Hubbard and Fred Klipsch and some of these other folks, they're grateful people. And the student, I said, what's one thing you learned about gratitude when you did the research before you did the art? She said, you know, President Elsner, if you work hard at being happy by getting more things and more experiences, it'll be hard to get to grateful. If you work hard at being grateful, you'll always be happy. And I thought that was an insight, and I think a lot about people like Fred and Al and others. They're grateful people. They came up, they worked hard, they were blessed with resources. And to help others is kind of their M.O., because they're grateful, and they want to do for others. And that's how you get to happy. You're a grateful person, and the grateful people want to help others in their station in life. And it's, I mean, to be around them is a total blessing. It's just a privilege, and, and I see that in leaders a lot. They're grateful people. They're grateful to be in America. They're grateful for their talents. They're grateful for what resources they have. And they're grateful they can make a difference in other people's lives. And they uh, relish the opportunity to do it, by and large. In June, the Mind Trust had its annual dinner. Mm-hmm. And at that dinner, uh, the award, and I forget exactly what it was called, but basically their top recognition award was given to former Mayor Bart Peterson. Mm-hmm. His legacy is is overwhelmingly positive when it comes to the city of Indianapolis. Sure. But none more so than in the area of education. Right. 
the decision by him, especially as a Democrat, I would argue, uh, to pursue charter chartering authority along with the help of Senator Teresa Lubbers and and certainly David Harris. Um, what impact has that had on education in Indianapolis? And have you had a chance to to thank Mayor Peterson about it and talk to him about oh, it? Sure. I know he works for yeah. Crystal DeHaan now, but yeah. talk to us a little bit about that decision, that movement, and how it's had its impact. Well, I was uh, working the Crystal DeHaan Family Foundation executive director at the time, and I know it took some people by surprise because typically politicians get locked into whoever funded their campaign and supporters. They have to kind of stay in their lane then. Once they've picked a lane, they stayed in it. Well, you know, they talk, remember the old book, Profiles and Courage, where you go ahead and make a vote even though sure. some of your best friends aren't going to like you? That would be an instance you could put in the book, a real, a real profile on courage, because he just was convinced there need to be more options than just one traditional public school system. And then others picked up on it. Fred Klipsch, Mitch Daniels, other leaders. Uh, I'm missing a lot of them that made a difference. Sure. Remember Pat Rooney was a, a Oh, leader. yeah, that's right. He was, he was sometimes considered kind of a lone wolf. He had, he had a voice in the wilderness that be called people to that said, look it, every child deserves options. Right now in our country, only wealthy children can go to public school or a private school. And they all thought by having a lot of options for educators and children, we would get to a better place. And frankly, a lot of the statistics in Indiana, not fast enough, are getting better in education. Well, when Mayor Peterson broke ranks in a sense, because the teacher union was very, very much financing the Democrat Party. Sure. And uh, he said, well, I'm sorry. I think we need some new options in our city, and I'm going to go for it. Uh, yeah, he, uh, you know, he, he paid a price for it. And, you know, I, he, you know who gained? That's a true leader. It wasn't about him. Who was it about? Children, families, the future of the city. So you have to do hard things when the time calls for it. And that's what leaders do, not for themselves. They're other-directed. And there's many roots of that in most faith traditions. You know, you, you walk the trail for the other, and you will usually pay a price. But what will your legacy be? So he has a legacy. He started some things in motion with other forces that created options for children. Now there's a lot of options, a lot of options for educators. Some educators want an innovation school. Some want a charter school. Some want parochial. Some want secular private. Some want traditional public. They have all those options, and everybody's one. And he will go down in history as, a, as one of the people that played a serious role in this, and you have to admire him. The charter movement as a whole, one of the things that uh, former Mayor Peterson said uh, in an interview was that the charter concept is under siege. And mostly, I think he said from a, a messaging perspective, but perhaps from a lawmaker, lawmaker perspective as well. What about the charter movement do you think should be changed or is it just a perception issue? Well, I mean, there's always communications issues because if you you can you can communicate charters two ways. You can vouchers two ways. Every option two ways. So there's two there's a lot of folks that want to go back and they would say the traditional public school is losing money because of all these options. It's robbing our children. That's one view. If that keeps being repeated over and over again, you can convince parents that when children have options and parents have options and educators have options, that's pulling away. What do we think in healthcare, automobiles, grocery stores, clothing stores, Amazon? Choices are good. Choices to find better price, better value, better fit for me. We think it's good. I think it's primarily a messaging problem. 
I also think we have to be strictly accountable. So whether it's a traditional public school, I sat on the State Board of Ed for 10 years. No matter what kind of school it is, if they're using taxpayer funds, are they accountable to get results? And sometimes maybe it's interesting. People want charter schools to be accountable and not be open if they're not working well. I would have to agree with them at a reasonable amount of time and give people time to turn around. But we should apply that same standard to all schools. So, uh, Robert, I, I would say a lot of this is messaging. We have to message correctly, and we have to state it correctly, and we have to follow through correctly. But anytime there's a movement, it's still relatively new to have charters, innovation schools, vouchers. You're going to have to continue to, to communicate well. And the dominant system that was disrupted never likes change, right? Correct. And so there's a lot of motivation there to communicate that it's damaging when it might really be one of the best things we're doing for children and families. Do you have a sense of what's next in the realm of education or education reform? The innovation mm -hmm. schools are, are kind of the new thing here mm -hmm. in Indianapolis, but, but what's oh. next? Yeah. I, I think the, re, the word with all due respect, I think reform's dead and it probably ought to be. And here's what I'm saying. The disrupting forces are so strong in education with technology and change, we don't need to reform an old system. We need to embrace the world's changed dramatically. What we know about neuroscience, what we know about special ed, what we know about the use of technology and delivery, what we know about the power of a great teacher. You know the big difference in quality education is teacher quality. What are we doing to honor that profession, to support it, to give new professional education, to recruit talented people, to create different career ladders where you can be a master teacher and, and have a larger responsibility 12 months a year and help design curriculum and coach? It isn't a reform movement anymore. I don't see it that way. I see a lot of platforms now, at least in Indiana, for educational great change to come. The forces that are going to change education next are not reforming and modifying. There's revolutions going to happen, and we're going to have to embrace it. It's still a very social and community-based project to educate children, even adults. But how do the forces of technology and what we know about the importance of quality teachers, see, we focused on buildings and technology and this thing and that thing, the next phase is outstanding instructors under out, within a system that's well, well led by great principals and superintendents and boards to achieve all new standards against a changing world. So the world as we know it, the technology and the forces and how children are developing and what we know about individualized instruction and desires is really going to force a mammoth um, uh, pressure on the system as we know it. And so tinkering and little reform here, a little change. By the way, I've grown tired of the reform movement because usually when I was growing up, if they sent you to reform school, it meant you weren't such a good kid. <laughs> and I, I'd I, heard yeah. that, but I've heard that in several articles, read that in articles that they're moving away from reform to, to basically a new, new mindset and new system. But you mentioned the word revolution. Is it coming from above or below? Outside. Um, outside. That parents are demanding and neighborhood leaders are saying, look, we've got to have a great school here. Yeah. And sectors of, of urban, especially urban and metropolitan communities are saying, look, what's being offered for my children isn't good enough. Uh, uh, my kids go to Ron Colley, which is no surprise because I wrote about it in the Annapolis Star. And at the time, I told their mother, I'm like, if we can afford to send our kids to Roncalli and we don't, as Catholic parents hmm. who want the best for our kids for the rest of their lives, then we are committing parental malpractice. It's been one of the best decisions we've ever right. made. Yeah. It's an expensive decision, which obviously I don't have to tell you about. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about that in a little bit. Uh, President Elsner is the father of nine. That's right. I believe that's correct. You got it. And so... 
is it coming from thought leaders and political leaders and think tanks who saying this is what should happen? Or do you think the next stage is going to come from neighborhoods and parents and families and students who say, this is what must happen. Mm -hmm. Help me save my family. Help me save my kids' future. Yes. (laughs) And so I'm not trying to be obtuse. (laughs) There are pressures on parents and community leaders how are we going to hold this thing together for each individual child, for our society, for our culture, for our economy? How's it going to work? In a technological world where change is happening and you have to be able to think and do things and add values and have no, it's a knowledge economy, right? A technological economy. So these forces coming at us and new ways to educate and better ways to educate and to individualize education and to know how the brain works. And whether it's a special ed kid that's off the charts smart or artistic, everybody has strengths. How do you find the strength and develop the strength? Are there pressures on parents to find that for kids? Sure. Are kids asking for it, demanding it? They're not going to go to school and sit and listen for 50 minutes to someone talk. They can get information anywhere. They're going to have to be engaged learners, excited learners, connected learners. I'm just saying the forces on all these from all angles, technology, the world's being internationalized, are demanding changes of our educational process that are beyond some of the small battles we fought in the past. They're much, much bigger, more challenging, and we'll have to join hands, parents, community leaders, students, educators, professional and otherwise, and say, how do we meet the needs of society today so that our economic, social, and cultural future is strong? As a former teacher and principal, how would you grade the education environment in Indianapolis? I see a lot of options emerging. I've sat with faculty at innovation schools, K-12 faculty, I see them energized. They're getting to control their future, design curriculum, meet needs of individual students. There's a lot going on. There will always be pressure to grab the past, say, we need to get back to you. We can't have all these options. Students are leaving. Money's going different directions. Uh, but that's, that can't, that's out of the can. I mean, we're going to have options. So I see what's happening here in our Klipsch College at Marion University. We have such talented kids going into it, young people going to education great programs. I see districts willing to partners and have paid residencies for new teachers under master teachers. I see the research is getting in the hands of educators more about what really works. I've never been more upbeat, and I don't think it's easy, but I've never been more upbeat about the knowledge we have and the potential we have to take kids that are in poverty and disadvantaged situations, privileged kids who need to have an emphasis on service to other and their character molded and how to take their gifts and talents and make the world better. I think there's so many different options and neat ideas emerging and talent coming into town. We have so many Teach for America students here at Marion. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've never been more optimistic, frankly, because I see options and I see new avenues and creativity emerging like never before. I did some PR work for group called Charter Schools USA, who you know oh, very yeah. well, sure, John yeah. Hage, who's mm-hmm. a wonderful, wonderful man. And he's from Florida, and we had one of our very first lunches. Uh, he said something that, that was interesting to me, and I want to get your mm-hmm. view on it. And he had been involved in education for decades, was close to then Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and helped create a lot of the education uh, changes there. He said the whole country... The whole country is looking at Indiana. Now, this was said about five years ago, Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit longer. I'd never thought that before because we're in the middle of it. Do you think that's true still? And why do you think the whole country, Mm -hmm. the education component of of the United States, is looking at Indiana? Uh, First of all, I'd say Fred Klipsch and others that Bart Peterson, a lot of different folks, worked at putting out educational options for parents and students, and they worked hard, and they pulled off their scholarship funds now, voucher funds, charter. 
there's a lot of options. Sure, it makes people nervous, and sure, it's disruptive. But when the outside world, technology and all the change coming are even more disruptive, you want a lot of options, right? One best system. We've watched really great companies in our country, technological companies, full of executives with MBAs from Harvard and all these great places out of business. What does one organization do better than anything else, keep itself alive and protect what Mm -hmm. they know? (laughs) Um, Where there's a lot of freedom and creativity, creative people meet the future. They create the future. That's why I'm so optimistic. And that's why people are watching Indiana, because in Indiana, you have these innovation schools. They're unique. You have charter schools emerging. You have voucher schools all over the place. What are the what's the traditional public school look like now in Indiana? They're changing. They're moving. They understand the market. We don't own our kids anymore. They're in. We have public school choice in Indiana. Right. The school does not own the children and their parents. They are free people. And in free markets with free people, with free association, you're going to get creativity and innovation. And that's where Indiana is. It's not easy. It's not magic. But boy, is it a good sandbox, so to speak, in which to play educational improvement. And the forces outside, you frankly, one parent, two parents, five parents can actually run a pretty good school. You can get information and brilliant podcasts on leadership (laughs) or anything else from a lot of different sources, right? Um, Now, how do you do project learning? How do you change the whole environment? The world's a-changing. We're sitting in a good sandbox where there's a lot of options available, where the one best system doesn't control all the money and creativity and put people in boxes. It's open. And you know and I know. Where creativity reigns, innovation comes through, and the human person's better served. So that's why people are watching Indiana, because there's a lot of ways to build a school, start a school, develop a school, and improve a school. And close a school if they're rotten. I had to do the public relations for them when they closed the project school several mm-hmm. years ago. And the parents were devastated, but they also knew that it, was, it needed to happen, that it wasn't, it wasn't performing. I want to talk just for a second before we move on about the Klipsch Educators College. Mm-hmm. Um, full disclosure, I did the public relations. I guess I still do from time to time. But for the launch for that, when I was in graduate school, um, I taught for a couple of years history classes. And on the first day, I said, if you hate history, raise your hand. And, of course, they all raised their hand. Got to watch say, what you invite there. Exactly. <laughs> My next question was, do you, do you hate history because you found it boring in high school? Keep your hand raised. No hand went down. Oh, dear. Now, I'm not diming out any teachers because I had terrific history teachers at Howe High School. Amazing ones. Uh, but the Educators College is dedicated to training teachers, school leaders, future leaders of the community, to avoid, in some ways, the dilemma that I just uh, articulated. How Talk a little bit, please, about your commitment to, to training and mentoring not only the future educators of, of the city, state, and country, but also the fact that you've made it your stated mission mm-hmm. yeah. to find people of color and with disadvantaged backgrounds to go into these local schools and say, I did it, yeah. so can you. Well, it all started in a, a vision that what, what kid, if you ever found a kid that deserves an inferior education, then you do some research, the educator's so important. And then you do some more research and you find out the teacher core is turning over so fast, especially in urban environments, and everybody blames it on pay. Everybody wants more pay, but most of the students went, the deeper research on that is they felt ill-equipped to be successful. Then you do some more research and find out that African-American children never or very seldom have an, an African-American teacher or Latino. In other words, the teacher core does not look like the students at all, okay? Then you say you have to respond, 
So our heart was into responding because it's about human flourishing. Catholic University wants to advance a common good. And it was very clear to us that the teacher that are in the field need more support, more honor, more respect, more development. And the new teachers coming in need to be trained at a higher level. New teachers are turning over so fast when they're ill-prepared. They just have to get out of it. They might have the heart to teach, but if you're getting your head handed to you every day, so to speak, it's not a lot of fun and you need to get out. And that turnover is really creaming us in terms of student progress, especially in challenging schools. Those children are not progressing at normal rate. Then they're suddenly in 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th grade. They find themselves two or three years behind. And how do you make that up? That gets to be a very, very difficult situation. So as a state and a community and as a university, we made that a top priority. And I, I wanted to be humble. Earlier you said, why are they watching Indiana? People are coming from around the country to see what we're doing at Klipsch College. Five-year program. It's a paid residency the fifth year, like med students. They get paid residencies. We're taking top students. We're getting excellent students. Last year, a fourth of the students who came in were either African-American or Latino. This year, it'll be over a third. And so we're going specifically in schools and how and tech and every other school, and we're inviting talented people to teach. Our enrollment's booming. We're getting more diverse students. The group as a whole are more talented than ever. And that's one aspect. The other aspect, we want to have A schools in our state. Then you've got to partner up with districts and principals and faculties and say, What's the research saying about how we could do math better or character education better or instruction or classroom management? Let's work with you over a long period of time and let's get that done together. You know, the old thing like the when you say you need to reform right away, there's defensiveness going on. Say, we, let's get better together. That's what we say a lot, better together. And how do we do it? And I, this Clips College, it's well-funded. We've been blessed. We've already raised $35 million for the endeavor. Our goal is to get to 50 by 2021, and I don't bet, but if you want to make a bet with me right now, if we'll hit the goal, I'll bet you. <laughs> let me just edit, editorial note: If you bet against Dan Elsner's fundraising prowess, you 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 might as well pack your stuff and move out. But but it's funny though; we don't go out and try to raise money. What we describe is, and this is true across the campus: what we want to do for people, what do we want to do for this community. Um, when you put it in that context, people usually ask, well, how much money do you need to get that done? And they give you according to what they have a lot of times. So this is a big vision. It's big vision for Indiana. It's big vision for Marion. It's part of our tradition. We didn't pull it out of the sky. The way we did it was rather bold. We closed down the old program, which was very good because we wanted to be one of the exemplars in the country. And sure enough, we have people visiting us from all over. The numbers are looking great. We're very fortunate. We sign up our teachers like they sign up big-time athletes. We have a signing ceremony. We give them gifts. We run them out in the court and field and cheer like crazy dogs. And, we, you know, it's purely sober, I assure you. But we're very excited about a great student becoming a great educator. And think of the difference it'll make. You know, you look 10, 20 years out. If what we're doing here revolutionizes the way we work with schools, not only us, but other universities, and the way we recruit and train teachers and the way we honor teachers, part of our research, other countries, they treat their teachers with tremendous respect. We've made a mistake here the last 25 years in the United States, 30 years. They don't get the reverence and the respect they deserve, and we got to reclaim that together. And so... The Klipsch College for me, I've been so blessed in the field of education, and I'm, I've, I never felt younger, frankly, and more energized about it. And part of the reason is this Klipsch College and what we're going to do for children and communities in the future of our country, uh, it gets me up early and keeps me up late. It's so exciting. Well, one of the things that's special about Marion and, and something you've, you've talked about, and we've talked about, quite frankly, and you've mm -hmm. written about, is the the importance of the the Catholic mm -hmm. in the Catholic University sure. of Marion? How much has that as as we start to wind up our podcast today? How much has that energized you? Yeah. Well, uh, 
yeah, energizes one, but it, it brings a calling to your work. Um, whether you're Christian or not, or Catholic or not, or frankly, we have students of every faith tradition on campus you can imagine. And even people of other faith traditions appreciate when you take faith serious. It's quite a grounding. Uh, Peggy Noonan recently gave the commencement address at Notre Dame. She says, keep your faith, and if you lose it, get it back because it grounds you. What did Jesus teach us? Whether you think Jesus was divine or just a good example or kind of a neat story, Jesus taught us sacrifice for others, and in there is glory and goodness. We were taught that everybody's valuable. He said, love God, love your neighbor. He didn't say love your neighbor, the one you agree with politically, or the one that looks like you, or the one that's blah, 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 has the nicest tennis shoes. Love your neighbor. And when you form a university community, now we're human, so it's going to be imperfect on any given day, right? But as humans, to pursue those goals, the dignity of each human person, being a responsible steward of our gifts and talents and the gifts and talents and the resources people have given us to educate, to be uh, after justice in society, make sure everybody gets a good education, when you make mistakes, to reconcile those, to stay, we belong to one another. That's the Christian ethos. When we encounter culture as a university, it's not a private good. In other words, I could run a university where you're going to get a good education and make more money. You happy? No, not happy enough. What are we doing as a university to advance the common good, to make this a better sandbox, if you will, regardless of station in life, our community, our culture better. A university is full of brilliant people with PhDs in medicine. We have a medical school. We have all these brilliant people. We need to be engaged in making the world a better place. And if that doesn't motivate you to be part of an engine where society and individuals live better, it's a better economy for them, it's a better social structure, a better family, because it's other-centered, it's like my student, my senior student, art student said, work hard at being a grateful person. Grateful people are givers. They're always happy. They want to do another thing. And so I'm very grateful to be part of a Catholic university. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that's part of my story. It doesn't limit us to Catholic people. It doesn't limit us to Christian people. It doesn't limit us to Christian people who all think the same. We have the same creator and a larger purpose. So Really, if you want to build a great university, I would contend the foundation is in the faith because the faith calls us to be good stewardship of our God-given talents, to find those strengths, develop them, and put them at the service of others, and look what you can build with it within the university and outside, whether it be education, business, health care, church, not-for-profits, and our students go here and around the world with that approach and that view of life and that view of humanity. That's a powerful view, a limited view that education helps me make more money and buy more things is really a zero-sum game. It's just not that enriching, right? When you start talking about inquisitive minds, skilled people, trustworthy people, people who are healthy and approach to life and balanced, that's a game changer for the individual, for professions, and for the common good. And what you think about spending your life doing something like that, there's a lot of neat things to do in the world. I'm not putting others down, but I feel very privileged and very grateful to be able to do it. I should have asked this question when you mentioned it a few minutes ago before we go to the five questions, which is how we end all of our podcasts you mentioned meeting Pope John Paul II, mm -hmm. Saint. Yeah, he's John a Saint. Paul II. Now. Were you nervous? No, actually, what happened? He was going to speak at the Superdome to youth. There was like 80,000 people in it, and there's a little room off the main. And he was going to meet leaders in Catholic education. I was superintendent of Catholic schools at the time um, in Wichita, Kansas. So I was in this room. I think there might have been 120 people in the room. It was a smaller room. It was pretty packed. 
And I had, it just so happened I was kind of in the front row, right, where he was going to walk in. And about the time I was going to reach out, you know, and, and shake his hand, all of a sudden there was about 20 nuns, about half my size, knocked me about three rows back and got in front of me. <laughs> so now I wasn't nervous. I was trying to save my life. The, the, did they have rulers in their hand like no, they always did? No, they were sweet people. They were just so. But it, it, it was more I loved being there in the presence and watching some with tremendous charisma and enthusiasm, and he was beaming. Now, he was getting ready to go out and talk to about 80,000 youths. You know, I would be looking at my notes and being nervous. I mean, he would like the guy next door offering you a beer. How you doing? I mean, he was, and he did this little presentation to us about our leadership. And he got done. He looked up wryly at everybody, and he said, my marks, you know, and you can say grades here a lot, but mm-hmm. in Europe they say, what are my marks? marks? Mm-hmm. And everybody cheered, you know, he got an A plus, but he was, uh, he, he was quite uh, charismatic and he was a courageous person. I've read a lot about him. His before. role in the ending of the Cold War is, is something that unfortunately gets overlooked perhaps, but his election as Pope, which I think was in 1979, mm-hmm. and the signal, he was the first non-Italian Pope in centuries, yeah. but but that election and the signal it sent to the Soviet Union at the time was powerful and remained so until the end uh, of the Cold War about a dozen years later. Now, you think about it, you know, walking around the White House or being, being in the room with Popes or different thing, and I'm just a I'm just a hasty kid from Nebraska. You know, I always find myself when I'm in those situations, the Oval Office or somewhere, like, how did I get to the White House? You know, what the heck am I doing here? Is this a big mistake? But it's... That that could be the name of your autobiography, uh, Dan, is um, I hid with the band and now I'm to get into football games and now I'm Mm -hmm. hanging out with presidents. I, I think that's where I learned to be an entrepreneur, trying to get in those football games without any money, but... I did it. Sometimes, by the way, I went legit and sold hot dogs till third quarter. I watched the fourth quarter. <laughs> I was a good, I could sell Cokes like a machine. I'm, I'm pretty good with numbers, so I could figure out the math at 35. Just think there were 35 cents a piece to get a Coca, Coca-Cola, then up to 75. You still sell them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that. those were all fun deals. So I walked in legit to meet the Pope, but the football game in Nebraska, you have to sneak in. So maybe that tells us about society. (laughs) (laughs) You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and Aaron Shaler, a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending. We've reached the uh, five questions portion. This is how we end all podcasts. I don't think I got a warning on these. I hope I you're do not well. supposed to. Okay, good. Uh, it's fun to uh, listen, folks. Watch people try to recall because they, it's it's a trip down memory lane. At least a few of them are. So mm-hmm. uh, I promise, no gotcha. Mm-hmm. So question number one is: What was your first job? Uh, delivering newspapers. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, delivering newspaper. I think before that, I helped my brother shovel some walks, and you get some money off of that in Nebraska. And uh, mowing lawns. My actually, my first job, I uh, was selling seeds. You could sell seeds. You'd order them, and go around the neighborhood and sell seeds to people, and you you got a commission on it. I actually did that, and uh, with my, I had my brother, four brothers. I actually did the first time I sold something was in third grade, selling seeds in the neighborhood. <laughs> Thank you for helping me recall. <laughs> what was your first concert? Musical concert. Um, I was working at an auditorium. I sold Cokes and things wherever I could. You know, we, we worked. We knew how to hustle. That's one thing my dad, our parents taught us to hustle. Simon and Garfunkel. They're pretty good. Just two guys. They had two stools, a couple of guitars. They came out on stage. They started just to sing away. And I remember getting a little distracted because I was there to make money, right? <laughs> Again, you, you knew the commission. You knew how fast you had to sell them. And you couldn't sell during a concert, so you got to stand at the aisle and listen to that concert. I thought, those guys are pretty good. Yeah, they did okay. They did okay. Sounds of silence. (laughs) If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Wow. Oh, yeah. You know, recently, over the years, you know, the, the book I really liked was 
Old Man in the Sea, there was just something gritty in that Hemingway book about that guy persevering. But recently, Dave Shane gave me a book a name uh, called Alienated. It's a very, very good book to explain culture and how people are successful and the importance of being connected and being community and faith life. So I'd say right now, the book on my mind a lot is a book called Alienated, and it's just rich. It's worth rereading and thinking about different chapters. It's, I read a lot, and I would say that's on my mind more than anything lately. Well, anything that comes from David Shane's probably a pretty darn good He's recommendation. He's a smart guy, too. I, re- I really admire him. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? And we're actually recording this on D-Day. Yeah. Yeah, you just, that's on my mind a lot. I would have loved, frightened. I've read a lot about it, watched the various movies. I guess that moment where these people knew, some of them estimated 90% of those soldiers would die and they went forward. I would have loved to have been President, I would have loved to have been President Eisenhower walking through the troops the night before and talking to him like he did. The famous picture of him yeah. talking to the paratroopers. Yeah, he could have been up in a perch somewhere, I guess. That's I would a moment in history I'd like to be in the room with President Truman when he decided to drop the atomic bomb because ethics intrigues me. Sure. There was a lot of angles to that. Um I'm sorry, you asked me for one moment. And, and those are intriguing to me beyond uh, beyond description. There are some things in ancient history. I, I'd like to have been in the room a few times with Adolf Hitler and, one, and, and just to say, didn't someone f- look at him and say, what the hell are you talking about? You know, come on, really? And just to see why do people cower when there had to be enough smart people around and when people didn't speak up, we often record history around who spoke up, who acted. I'm often intrigued with who didn't act and why not? What what causes people to pull back in the in the uh, pea pod and, and just stay there and hunker down and not act? So, again, I, I'm giving long answers. I It's hard to pick one instance, but maybe it's in the room with Truman when they had the discussion about the atomic bomb. There's also a famous picture of Eisenhower. I think he was running for president, so it would have been 52, where he's uh, addressing uh, the Memorial Association of the paratroopers who dropped on D-Day. Mm-hmm. And um, he can't get through the speech because he's crying. Oh, really? To see a picture of Dwight Eisenhower with tears running down his cheeks because... He talked to those guys the night before. He knew that the casualty rate was going to be absolutely massive. They walked, they climbed in those planes anyway. And and to see that picture, which I'll I'll show you when we're done here. We got one more question. Forgive me. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record just to chat, whom would you choose? Oh, that's really a great question. I I suspect I'd be quite interesting to have nobody in the room and ask Donald Trump a few questions and listen to his answers and try to understand. I understand you know, he's get, he knows how to get things done, obviously. But I'd like to ask him his thought process or try to understand some of the ways he goes about his business and see how he would like some of my questions. I, I don't suspect he would, but, <laughs> but I, I, w- I wouldn't mind spending a couple of hours to see wh- where what I'm missing there because I think there's sometimes some moves. That I always try to respect every president, whether I agree with him or not, President Obama, who cares? I mean, I don't. they're president, right? Sure. I, I wouldn't mind a two-hour visit with him. Maybe he'll hear this podcast and invite me out. I'd be pleased to go. We'll send it to him for sure. Yeah, you never know. He'll say, yeah, bring that Dan Elsner over here. I'll see what that smart Alec has to say. I think the VP could make that happen for you. You know, you were talking about Eisenhower. You know, one of the great quotes about leadership I've ever heard was from Eisenhower. He said, leadership is getting people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. I've often thought about that. Leadership is about getting people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. 
and I think that was kind of the deal when you think about paratroopers and D-Day. Um, there was a pride in understanding these people, what they were supposed to do. They wanted to do it, and he had to get them organized and talk to them a certain way and do it with enthusiasm, skill, and acuity that ensured victory. And that's, that's probably a good summation for a leadership podcast. Well, our podcast is called Leaders and Legends for a reason, and that's because we get to talk to people like Mark Miles and Greg Ballard and Allison Langdon, and and quite frankly, we have a terrific future lineup coming, and and it is leaders, men or women, who affect change through the power of their thoughts and deeds and and words, and I I guarantee you this, uh, Marion University is going to be carved into two time periods and one of them is going to be ad and that's after dan (laughs) president elsner is very gracious to spend time with you today i know this because uh, i hear it all the time but the work you're doing here at this university is is respected probably more than you could ever know and we're very grateful to have you on today it's a privilege to be at marion and it's a privilege to be with you today thank you Robert. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Veteran